Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Philadelphia Phillies World Series champ, the Bull, Greg Lazinski. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today we got a very special guest. I've known this man since probably the day I was born. He's a four-time All-Star. He led the the league in ribbies in 1975. And he won a World Series with the Phillies in 1980. He's known to the baseball world as the Bull. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Luzinski. Bull, thanks for coming on. Hey, Brett, no problem. Uh, It's hard to believe I'm doing this here uh, with you. Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, uh, you grew up... uh, with the Phillies, and then uh, obviously it moved on from there. But uh, I still remember you and your Johnny jump up uh, in between the doorways <laughs> in the instructional league. So uh, we do go back a long, long way. We go back a long way, and I'm going to let you feel. I didn't even prep by calling mom and dad for the for the the big time details when I was little, little. But I figured I figured you'd uh, you'd fill me in. So let's. Uh, well, you grew up in Illinois. Yeah. Uh, born in Chicago. Grew up at. Grew up in Illinois. And uh, I want to hear about your childhood. I know you're a football player. Was well, was baseball yeah. always what it was for you? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, I, I re- back then when we, you know, we we were coming up, it was t-shirt league, and then. Uh, that was kind of the minor leagues to a little league and then little league and, you know, on from there. But, uh, actually, uh, I didn't play, uh, didn't play high school football. I mean, football ties in high school and, uh, I, you know, thoroughly enjoyed that. But, uh, uh, as a freshman, I played the varsity baseball and, uh, you know, it, it was so different back then. Uh, I, it was the draft was only I think started a couple of years, three years before that, and obviously weather has a lot to do with uh, playing baseball in Chicago. And uh, you know the, the the draft was something that wasn't uh, really talked about a whole lot, uh, other than the fact that uh, you know there was a baseball draft, uh, and uh, I had no idea until actually my senior year that uh, I was even on a radar of a big league team. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it was a little bit a little bit different. I, I think uh, as far as uh, football goes, uh, yeah, I had a decision to make. I mean, obviously it was pretty simple for me. Uh, I could have played in a lot of big-time schools, uh, anywhere from Notre Dame to Southern Cal to University of Miami. So, uh I, I obviously I went on recruiting trips and you know when I started seeing the size of some of these guys uh, uh it kind of changed my mind and I said you know I think I need to swing the bat and play a little baseball and uh, obviously I was drafted in 1968 uh by the, by the Phillies and, and the funny thing about the the whole story was that uh the Phillies really didn't have me on the radar because of uh, the fact that Bruce Knatzer, who was, uh, I guess, the local area scout there, uh, had had uh, 
cancer, and uh, so he wasn't uh, up and about. And they tried; to, they had a bunch of people filling in for him. But uh, my coach uh, John Burke lived next door, and you're going to really know this name. Lived store next door to a guy by the name of Bukovic. No relation to John uh, with the Phillies, but he uh, went to the army. He was in the army with Bob Carpenter, and uh, he picked the phone up and called Carpenter and told him that uh, there are a bunch of big-time scouts here uh, in the last week uh, right before the draft, and that uh, he was wondering how, what the Phillies thought. Well, they really didn't have much on me. So uh, Paul Owens uh, was called uh, the West Coast, and there's a gentleman out there named Patty Cottrell, and uh, Patty came in to, to uh, Niles, Illinois, and uh, took uh, film of me. Uh, at batting practice, and I think maybe a game, but uh, that's how late it was getting ready for the draft. And uh, next thing I know, I was in uh, graduation and found out that uh, I was drafted by the Phillies. But uh, unless uh, the, the, my coach's next door neighbor would have mentioned it, something to uh, the Phillies, uh, I probably wouldn't have ended up there. You know, uh, the Yankees had called me. Uh, on the phone, and they were earlier than the Phillies. I think Phil, I was 13, but they were earlier, and they I caught in uh, high school some. So they wanted a catcher, and uh, they explained to me that uh, they were interested, and it was between, believe it or not, it was between me, myself, and Thurman Munson. So and he was at Kent State, so they they did call me back and say that uh, they're going to draft Munson because uh, he was older, and they felt he could get to the big leagues quicker than I could. So uh, they did. Uh, the Yankees drafted uh, Thurman Munson, and uh, I went to the Phillies. That's wow. That's it, it's amazing how much things have changed. I mean, you go back to '68, and I think you were 11th overall in the first round for the Phillies. But just from that '68 draft. In the way you explain it, it's almost like <laughs> you had to wait for a, a, a letter to come to you in the mail to see if you get drafted. Now, fast forward to to today, 2021, and these kids, I mean, they're getting interviewed if they might get drafted in the first 100 picks. I know uh, years back, um, your son Ryan was a high pick in the yeah. draft, yeah. and you probably saw a big difference from your time just to, to Ryan's time and then – now it's it's completely different, but uh, well, we've come along we've come a long way in that aspect. Huh? Yeah, I, I I think so. I mean, like you said, uh, the draft's totally different. I think everybody's more educated, obviously, uh, than they were back uh, in in '68. I mean, the game has changed so much with analytics that, uh, you know, they use this for draft for drafting kids and everything else that, you know, it's really, it really kind of passed me by. I, I think sometimes that uh, these scouts uh, or people that are going to draft these people don't really see them. I think they, they let people go out there. This is just my opinion that uh, can't judge talent. I mean, I think there's a, a, a special back in the fact that you can judge talent. And, and I'll just say, I think your father is probably one of the best I, I've seen in a while. I mean, your dad's really good at judging talent and, and what he thinks a guy can 
do and how he's going to perform. And uh, I know uh, that we've been friends a long time, but uh, he, I, I watch him, I've ta- talked to him, and uh, you know, I coach with him when he managed in Kansas City. And uh, the man knows baseball, but he also knows talent. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't think you're ever going to be able to eliminate the 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 baseball man, the the guy that just gets at the gut feeling, that just watching by how a player moves. Uh, there was an interesting podcast I did with Mike Sosha, who who is a who is a guy that played back in the '70s and the '80s, part of the '90s, but yet managed up until 2018. So he's seen both sides of the ledger. He's seen these. The, the analytics of the game uh, work their way into the game to where we at at this point. And he had a real interesting take. He was talking about the micro versus the macro and how you can't just completely go uh, base your team and your moves on just an algorithm. You've got to, there's a lot more that goes into it. It was really interesting picking his brain for a guy, like I said, that had to study uh, the new technology, but yet brings that baseball mind to it. It was an interesting mesh. And there was one other thing you, 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 uh, you touched on when you said, you know, I was a real good football player at a lot of a lot of uh, places that you could have gone uh, recently. Uh, you know, we did have dad on the podcast. I did have Richie Sexton on the podcast and talking about playing multi sports. Your your first thing you said right there was and I realized how big these boys were that I was about to go play with. So I decided to swing the bat. It's amazing. Richie Sexton, six, eight had offers to play college basketball over the place. And he said, once he got out of his comfort zone in, in uh, Washington and, and started branching out to California, he said, these guys were better than me, you know, similar with my dad, as you know, he went to Stanford on a half baseball, half basketball scholarship. He went to Stanford. He said, these guys are too good. So it's amazing. You know, we take for granted these guys that have played two sports at the highest level, but I think the way you touched on it and the other people that I've interviewed, man, it's it's pretty special to be able to to play the game, uh, two different games at the highest level. So that was interesting for me. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, it, it, it's a decision, though, at a young age that uh, a lot of the people have to make. Uh, you know, I was out of high school, so uh, uh, obviously I, I went the baseball route. But, uh, it, you know, it was a big decision. I mean, back at that time, Brad, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I was, what, 11th uh, pick in the country, and I got a whole $60,000. Now, when you think about it, I, you know, when the pe- first thing people are going to say, well, $60 was worth a lot more back then and then it, it is today. So, anyways. Uh, you it's know, not it, worth it's, that much more a lot. <laughs> no kidding no kidding but uh you know we're talking about uh your father a little earlier and uh you're you, you probably don't well you were a young very youngster uh obviously he was drafted i think in 69 and out of stanford and the funny thing about it is uh, we were in carolina and we we were in uh, durham and uh, the players were coming in, and uh, our manager was Nolan Campbell. And uh, we used to work out a lot, uh, you know, have morning workouts and then be able to go back home and then, you know, have a game that night. I'll, I'll never forget that when I was sitting in the clubhouse, I was in there uh, early, 
and your father comes around the corner in a Stanford Letterman's jacket, and uh, it was kind of funny. What he was, I said, "What are you carrying?" And uh, he said, "Oh, those are fishing poles." I said, "You know what?" I said, "Just leave them in your locker because you'll never take them out of there." I said, "They'll keep you too busy." And guess what? Those fishing poles never came out of that locker. You know, he had the carrying case and all. I just said, leave them in there. But uh, it was that was uh, really how I met your father, to be honest with you. Uh, and I asked them, I said, you were drafted. Uh, and they said uh, they didn't know what you were, if you were a pitcher or a third baseman. And obviously, I'm not being a catcher. Uh, but uh, it was, uh, you, you know, you talk about uh, somebody switching positions. And that uh, turned out to be one of the best catchers in the big leagues for a long, long time. So you get drafted. You're 17 years old when you get drafted. And uh, you, only sp- you only spend a year and a half, well, roughly a year and a half, maybe a little longer than that. And you make your de- debut in 1970 with the Phillies. You're 19 years old. Uh, I-, I think... I think people out there listening to the podcast don't know how unique that is, especially at, at that time, you know, in 1970. That was a very rare thing. We think of Griffey came up in his teens, uh, Trout, Harper recently. I, th- I think Vladimir Guerrero Jr. did it at 19. Uh, Juan Soto playing over with the Washington Nationals has done it. But, but there's not a very long list. How is that for you going from you don't know – that the Phillies are interested in you to be in a number one pick to two years later, you're, you're getting your first at bat pinch hitting in the big leagues for the Philly. How was that? Well, it's a great experience. Obviously. Uh, I think, uh, I remember being in New York, uh, and race at Decky, a left-hand pitcher. He was on the mound for the New York Mets and, uh, it might have been my first at bat, to be honest with you. And uh, he had struck out like 13, 14 guys, you know, and I, I got to pinch hit. And obviously I was uh, 14 or 15 of his case. But, uh, you, know, it, you know, to be in New York City against uh, the New York Mets pitching staff was uh, quite a thrill. But, uh, you know, I, I often think, and look back, and like you said, I was 19 years old, and uh, I don't know if players nowadays move as fast as uh, they move moved me and other other guys. I think the Phillies at that time were an organization, along with the Yankees and a few other uh, other teams, that minor league systems were really really good and strong, you know, and uh, they moved people up quite quite a bit, but uh, Paul Owens was uh, uh, the, the general manager, and uh, he, he wanted to go uh, in ways of youth movement, so uh, younger guys start coming up. I know uh, Bo came up a year before me, and uh, you know, there was Denny Doyle, and he ended up in Boston, but uh, you know, we all played together you know, in the minor leagues, and went to the structural league and everything else, and uh, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, coming to Philly and uh, reading an article about Bo, uh, who I room with, and uh, we're good friends. And the guy called him uh, a little league hitter, and I had a laugh because, uh, you know, he just learned to switch hit basically in the big leagues. And here is a guy with over two thousand hits. You know that, that that's quite impressive for me. But uh, 
Speaking of hits, Brad, I was with the hit hit king the other night in Clearwater, Florida. It was your father, uh, Larry Boa, Pete Rose, and myself. And we did. A, yes, a, I, I saw some pictures. Yeah. Some pictures got so back to me. Question and answer uh, thing for about 500 fans. But, uh, you know, I, you think of Pete Rose with uh, 4,000, what, some hundred, some hundred hits. I mean, he was talking about things that uh, he made 10,000 outs in his career. Uh, you know, he, he took the bat up there, I don't know, 16,000 times. I mean, when you start hearing these numbers, they're sta- staggering. But uh, it, w- it was quite interesting, and it was it was a lot of fun. But because we there was a lot of uh, talk about 1980, obviously when we won the series, and, uh, you know, we had a big Philly crowd there, so well, you know, it, it, it was a lot of fun. But uh, I, you know, just sitting there for a little bit and listening to Pete and uh, some of his facts and figures. Uh, those are records that will never be broken. And, and I don't really know if people really appreciate, you know, those a record like that or, or DiMaggio's uh, consecutive hitting streak. I mean, I, I know, like you said, there's some great players and uh, that, that that have come around here, the Griffies and uh, Trouts and that. But there there are also some real good players back in the day. And uh, when you think of a guy like Pete and with his four thousand hits, I mean, just it's just uh, an unbelievable record. And you you know because you stood in that batter's box, you know, and uh, you faced a lot of quality pitchers. But uh, he was um, he also said he had over a three hundred average against all the top pitchers, which is which is pretty unique. So you know he must have really lunched up on uh, average pitching. I'll tell you, I, I mean, the, if you put a four in front of the hit, I mean, 3,000 is mind-boggling. 2,000 is unbelievable. 3,000 is ridiculous. 4,000, I mean, most of us that played the game for a long time, we don't even think in numbers like that. It's almost when I look at at the RBI record, you know, it's, it's I think it's 20, close to 2,300 RBIs. I mean, that's a yeah. that's just a lot. You know, you look at the home runs, 700-plus home runs. These are things that are amazing. But that – that Pete Rose uh, hit record. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And, and I think the DiMaggio, no chance. I don't think anybody ever. The, the the pitching is too specialized nowadays. There's too many different pitchers you have to face in a game. And to get a hit, you, like you know, Bull, you got to be – sometimes you got to have a little luck. You know, you might have a great game yeah. and you have, yeah. you have three great ABs and you come back 0 for 3 with a walk. And uh, there's nothing you can do about it. So I think that's pretty safe. But yeah, I want to get, I want to get, huh? Go ahead. I want to get, because this is kind of near and dear to me, you know, myself, um, your kids, you know, my brothers, Aaron, especially because he was around in those days. Those Philly years for us as kids were so cool. Uh, just growing up in the 70s with you guys, coming to the ballpark all the time. I think it's it's really cool how, like you alluded to earlier, you guys kind of grew up together, came up together. You had dad, yourself, Boa, Schmitty came along. Uh, and you guys yep. kind of had a core group. And I, I, I look at it, and maybe I'm a little uh, partial because, you know, I was I was going to the ballpark with you guys every day back then. But – 
some of the greatest baseball memories I have are from my childhood and watching you guys. I remember watching the Pittsburgh Pirates and We Are Family and the rivalry you guys had, playing the Big Red Machine, going out to L.A. and you had that infield of Garvey and Lopes and and Say and uh, Russell. Those guys came up together. You don't get to see that too often in today's modern-day game. Uh, tell me about that a little bit and, and how cool that was playing in in that era. Well, it, it, there's no question. I think it was uh, it was it was really tough because uh, to get to a, a World Series, obviously there were two divisions uh, in in the league. It was East and West, and uh, it was uh, you know you had to win the East, and then you had to go to a five game series. And as you know, when you play in a five-game series, there's really no room for mistakes uh, or or not hitting or pitching. I mean, you got to put it all together in those in that series. So it was pretty unique. I mean, I I look back, you know, at that era of baseball, and uh, I was fortunate enough. I played with uh, what uh, Steve Carlton Hall of Famer. You know, I played with Seaver actually in Chicago Hall of Famer, Carlton Fish Hall of Famer. So I played with quite a few Hall of Famers and uh, Mike Schmidt. And there's always, there's a little something different about them. And I've said this, I, I don't, I can't put my finger on it, but there's there's something totally different about a Hall of Famer that uh, you it, it just it boggles my mind. I just can't think of what 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 it really is but you know it's kind of like they told me oh mike schmidt when he was a youngster got hit by lightning and then you know and uh, there's scar he show you the scar on his legs i remember remember that i said well they must that must have energized you because you're you know you're hitting a ton of home runs so but uh anyways pitching was uh a lot different you know we we didn't have that middle guy uh you know, you, you, you face good pitchers, and they, they'd extend out. And then, uh, obviously, everybody had their seventh or eighth and ninth uh, inning guy. But uh, I, I remember our ball clubs, and uh, I know Tug, Tug McGraw was, uh, you know, a special left-handed pitcher because he threw a screwball that uh, really nobody threw, you know, in the big leagues. But uh, we actually had two closers, and uh, I know uh, because of the big strikeout, the way he pitched going down the stretch, that, uh, you know, everybody talks about uh, Tug, but uh, we had another guy that uh, really filled in so well in the closer's position when Tug couldn't go out there. That was Ron Reed. I mean, he, you know, you talk about specialty people. Your guy's six six, and, uh, you know, he played basketball. He played for a little – He's. I think he's one of uh, just a couple people that played uh, NBA basketball and in the big leagues. So you talk about special talents, and uh, there it was, you know, around here. But I think he was as important to the 1980 club as uh, any pitcher he really had. So we talked about you make your debut in 70. Uh, 72 is the, is the first year where you really kind of establish yourself. You hit 281, you hit 18 home runs. Uh, but what, what I'm getting to is is the 75 to 78 uh, years for you. You're an all-star all four years. Uh, 
you lead the league in ribbies in 75. You drive in 100 in that, in that four-year span three times. And you hit 300 three times. So you got you and Schmitty in the middle of that lineup. Uh, pretty awesome run for you in that time. Yeah, it was good for me. I mean, I, I, you know, I was uh, probably more of an average hitter at that time than Mike. And uh, Mike uh, was uh, the home run guy. I mean, he, he hit uh, more home runs, obviously. He got 500-some home runs. But, uh, every, I mean, he, he, he almost was set down but he, uh, in his first year. But he, he, he hit so many damn home runs. You know, you couldn't set him down. I mean, average-wise, you could, but you couldn't buy home runs. And, uh, you know, he turned out to be probably the best third baseman that's ever played the game. So, uh, you know, it's a little different. I, I, as for myself, uh, I would have liked to put those three three years or four years I had together right now and be playing. You know, I think <laughs> Back uh, my, up the paycheck truck. Would have been, my paycheck <laughs> would have been a little fatter. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we had good teams, and uh, everybody on that team. You know, when you talk about a lineup, everybody fit in the right spot. Uh, we got, we all got along really well. Uh, I think we started to really gel when uh, Owens traded for uh, Gary Maddox at center, and then later on we picked up uh, Bake McBride right. So not only did we have guys that you know could hit forever we had guys that could hit it out of the ballpark and we had guys that could fly now so uh, our offense was uh, pretty complete there back in the late 70s and the 80s so uh, I, I like you said I, we had some good teams uh, you know played with uh, and I like to mention Steve Carlton and he won I think in 72 he won like 30 36 games for the Phillies, and I think we only won 50-some. We were dead last place, but every time he went out there, you know, he'd call it wind day, and uh, we'd go out, he'd go out there, and he, he was a tremendous left-hand pitcher, you know, Hall of Famer, but uh, it, was, it was, to me, uh, unbelievable in 72. How you could go out there and uh, win 30, was it 36 games, and we only won 50-something. I mean, the number that number staggering to me. I mean, he was just he he was just a great pitcher, and uh, obviously we picked him up from uh, St. Louis uh, in a trade with Rick Wise. Rick Wise went to uh, uh, the Cardinals, and uh, we got uh, we got Steve Carlton, and I he was uh, the mainstay of our pitching staff through our glory years. And you talk about that 72 season still to this day, it's brought up in the conversation when they, you know, when they'll do a tribute to the greatest uh, single season performances ever. I see Carlton there all the time with that 77. You're at the all-star game, hit a home run off, off Jim Palmer and 78. You're the top vote getter. Now that, that was just an interesting tidbit I came across, but I think it speaks to, and still today, you, when, when you go see Greg, uh, we'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, he's, he's got a barbecue out in right field. I believe it's section one Oh four at citizen bank park. Uh, your popularity always has been way up there. Uh, and like I said, I think it, it, it 
rolls over into into 2021. Guys, I, I see how they interact with Greg. I, I can watch you from afar. People still just loved coming and hanging out with the Bull. You were like that as a player. And, and I, it, it didn't shock me when I came across this, but in 78, when you were the top vocator, I said, well, that's, that's how people receive Greg. It, it's a pretty, pretty awesome honor. Not too many people get to say the public went out and voted for me over everybody else in the world that plays baseball. And I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I guess, well, we'll I, I, you know, that, that was a great honor because there were so many great players on that, that ballot, to be honest with you. I mean, that to be the top vote getter was like, whoa. Here we go. But, uh, you know, you talked about that home run off of Palmer, and uh, it was funny that uh, we ended up facing Palmer. And I'll tell you a story about Yankee Stadium. Uh, because we were very, very competitive in the 70s and gone to the playoffs, I was uh, supposed to do a Pan Am commercial in Yankee Stadium. And it was down towards the end of the year, and uh, we were going to win our division. And so I was doing it for Pan Am Airlines, and uh, they went to get permission from, uh, obviously, Steinbrenner. And Steinbrenner says, no, we can't do the commercial here. And uh, I said, did he say why? And they said, yeah. He said that uh, Yankee Stadium has an awe about it, and then would players first walk in to Yankee Stadium advantage to the Yankees. And, um, you know, it was weird because uh, obviously you've been there when you come to take the L train to come through the center field gates and pass all the monuments of the history of the game out there. I mean, that, that, that's something that's uh, really neat. But uh, to not be able to go there and do a commercial. So, uh, actually, I can honestly say that. My first at bat in Yankee Stadium, I hit a home run. So there you go, George. <laughs> <laughs> Save it, George. Yeah. All right, so we get to that uh, that 80 World Series, and, and what a big time it was uh, for that city. That year, 1980, it wasn't just the Phillies. It was the Eagles and Jaworski at the helm, and it was the, the era of Dr. J, and, and the Flyers had a, had a great team at that time. Uh, it, that right in the middle of my childhood, you know, I think I was 10 years old, maybe 11 years yeah. old, but, but how would that city, when you won the world series in 80, hadn't, hadn't happened in forever, but you, I, I just remember it, that city was just like the sports Mecca at that time. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, no question about it. I think, uh, you know, we, we were rocking it. We were all in that. Uh, I ended up, uh, you know, going to see the Sixers and this playoffs. I went to the, the Super Bowl in New Orleans to see the Eagles and obviously uh, the World Series. And, uh, you know, everybody talks about Philly, but uh, I think as far as fans supporting their teams and, and going out there, they, they, they were tremendous. I mean, I'm sure your dad's talked about the, the parade down Broad Street and both sides of the street is jammed with people. And then when we came to Veterans Stadium, uh, we ended up going to JFK where they had uh, microphones set up for uh, some of the players to address the crowd. And all of a sudden we pull in JFK and there's 125,000 people in there. So, uh, you know, we were 
well accepted by by, by the Philly Philly people, and uh, I think they're pretty patient with us because uh, obviously uh, we lost uh, twi- our once to Cincinnati, which was uh, boys against men, and then twice to the Dodgers in the playoffs, and then uh, finally beat uh, beat Houston. Uh, every game went. Uh, extra innings but the first game and everybody knows that uh, uh, Pete Rose knocked over Bochi uh, was probably one of the the biggest plays of the whole series and uh, then we were down to uh, Nolan Ryan in uh, game uh, game five and came back and uh, beat them. Uh, your father got a big hit up the middle and uh, I think uh, the shocker of that inning was the fact that uh, Greg Gross, one of our top pitch hitters, and he was one of the top pinch hitters in the league for a while, he laid down a he laid down a bunt. Now, th- uh, nobody on our team would ever think he would bunt, but he's facing Nolan Ryan in the Astrodome and he puts a perfect bunt down the third base and I changed I think it frustrated the hell out of Nolan and it changed the whole game uh, he won the save after that and uh, uh, Pete, Pete had a big at bat I think he must have been he must have been up there for a half hour you know falling balls off and but uh, he, uh, he he it changed the game there's no question little Greg Gross with a with a bunt down the third base and all of a sudden you see a guy like uh, Nolan you know who was uh, like a Hall of Famer great pitcher get frustrated and uh, and lose it a little bit and uh, we went on to, we went on to win that and then played Kansas City in the World Series and won that uh, you know you know how hitters get hot we had some hot hitters going going into uh, the World Series. Dell Hunter was playing well uh, as a pinch hitter. Mike Schmidt, who uh, during the year uh, was MVP of the National League, and he became uh, MVP of the 1980 World Series. So, you know, when you get guys in the middle of your lineup like him and a few other people that get hot, and you know how Pete was. Pete was just a – she had a hit machine, so he he was always on base. So it was uh, quite a big experience, and uh, it was the first time. And I think for us guys that were there, like you said, that came up through the organization and were grouped in that group, you know, your father, you know, myself, Schmitty, Boa, and everything. It was it it, it was kind of like. The pressure was off us, but I know the the fans were obviously for three other three other playoff games just totally uh, disappointed, and there was a lot of talk at, at the end of '79 that uh, they'd break the team up. You know, uh, at, at, after uh, you know we lost the series in '79, so to be able to basically say you got as a player instead of going to another organization, you got to. A second chance with the Phillies was uh, was pretty good. And and man, that Astros series, I can still remember it as a little kid watching it. I'll, I'll t- to this day, you break out the uh, the old tapes of that Astros series or that series and that World Series with you in Kansas City. Aaron Boone will go through that. He can name every pitch. You know, he'll do the Harry Callis play by play, and and it just shows you how much that that was just. A snapshot in our childhood where I, I still remember it today. I can remember, you know, that comes on, you know, 
classic games, uh, ESPN or MLB Network, uh, and I'll sit down and start watching it. You know, I'll get a text from from Petey Rose Jr. He'll be like, hey, how about Bull in the fourth inning? You know, just funny stuff. All of us that were there, uh, how cool of a time it was. That Astro series, by the way, I saw an A-B from you. You hit a home run to take the lead in game one. It was the only home run hit in that Astros series. Did you know that? Yeah, it was off force. Yep. Uh, it was off force. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got a couple yeah. lenient calls, too, to get to your count. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people say that those balls are strikes, but, you know, when. You know the umpire behind home plate. You know, you know. Years ago, you used to know everybody that was back there. You know, you know. You knew Doug Harvey was back there. You knew Dutch Renner was back there. You know, they they were all National League umpires, and the American League guys were still, you know, they were in the other league. But you you had these guys so many times that you you really got to know their strike zones. I mean, Lee Wire would cut home plate out with his spikes, you know, and. You'd see him, and he goes, that's the pitchers. Well, guess what? You better be swinging, you know, because that's the pitchers. So, you know, you, you do uh, you know, you know, do take some pitchers probably that are questionable. And uh, I, I might uh, – the, the ball everybody talked about was high. It may not be high today's game with the strike zone they have, but it was high then. And, uh, you know, speaking of that – I don't know if I could play now, you know, <laughs> because the fact of the high ball, you know, I'm, I was a low ball hitter and I got traded in uh, 81. I got sent to the White Sox and I'll never, never, never forget. It was the first series and uh, the umpire's room was right in the runway as we go to our clubhouse. So I was walking up the ramp and I, I knocked on the door. And Kenny Kaiser was there, and he opened the door, and I said, hey, can I talk to you guys? And they go, yeah, what's the problem? I said, I'll tell you the problem. I said, you know the pitch you're calling? And they said, what, what pitch is that? I said, that high that high fastball breaking ball. I said, you know what? I'm from the National League. I said, she, that ball's got to be below the belt to be a strike. You know, and uh, they kind of laughed. But uh, some of those guys used to have the old balloon protector, so, you know, it, it was a little bit different. I mean, nationally, they all had inside protectors. But that little meeting that I had with must have gone around the league a little bit because uh, I didn't get many high pitches called on me after that. Yeah, and, and kind you, of a, say, you say a little story. And I remember Kenny Kaiser. He was tough on me when I came up. I, I, I had a few run-ins with that that old school umpiring crew before. Now it's kind of a modern day where they're they're monitored, they're watched, they're critiqued all the time. But back in the day, they had their own agenda, <laughs> and if they wanted to stick it to you, they could stick it to you. Uh, oh yeah, you talk- they tell you. You're right. They tell you. They go, uh, "What have you done?" You know, I mean, it's like your first year, and you, you know, you take that three-two pitch and you start running down to first base, and they call it a strike, and it's like, don't show me up, you know. So the game, the game is definitely crazy. different when you when you talk about uh, you don't know if you could play to, today. I look at it from the perspective: the best players in the world, 
they they would find a way to play for whatever the game was today. So I think if you're a you're a 17 year old Greg Luzinski in 2021, I, I think something tells me that you'd find a way to adjust to that that high pitch that they're calling. Well, I I think I would, but uh, I don't know about the swing they got nowadays. You know, that's a little different than what we were taught. To be honest with you, I mean, you know, now it's kind of a more of a you might say back shoulder. Uh, uppercut swing, back shoulder dip. But uh, you know, when we were we were coming up, uh, we had uh, hitting instructors in the minor leagues that were. I don't know if they were really hitting instructors. Now that I look back at it, you know, and everything. Well, you got you got to swing down through the ball, down through the ball, hit the top half of the ball. Now they hit the bottom half, you know. So it it you know it's 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 a lot different. But uh, you know what, Brad, the, the game still still baseball it's you know the rules are still the same and and they want to change some of those but uh, basically they're the same and uh, like you said there there's a lot of great young talent out there and uh, i think uh uh baseball is actually going to get more more exciting because i think nowadays uh they they find uh they find that young talent and like you say everything is kind of specialized so these guys get to work on hey i'm a sixth inning pitcher i'm the seventh inning pitcher you know as far as pitchers go but uh you know i i think that baseball just has so much talent in it you see so many teams right now that are going to be so competitive this year that it's going to be a really interesting year yeah no i, I definitely agree with that um it it's for me i uh, you know i i think when when you just get all that cloud out of your mind with the new and the bottom half of the ball and the top half of the ball and all that you're right baseball is still baseball and and when in doubt this thing will never change get a good pitch to hit and knock the crap out of it i don't think that'll ever go away (laughs) 2021 2050 1857 it doesn't matter you get a a hitter that can hit, you get a good pitch to hit, you knock the crap out of it. That eliminates a lot of that technical, did I hit the top half, did I hit the bottom half? For me, it's overwhelming. It can be in the wrong hands, all this modern-day technology. On one side of the ledger, I'm a bit envious because I was a big video guy, and I always am looking for anything, any nuances with a with an opposing pitcher. Uh, so, so one side of me – kind of envies the modern day players. Wow. If I had all that technology and all that info at my fingertips on my laptop, man, would life be easier? Then again, I see what these kids are going through now. It can be overwhelming and especially in the wrong hands. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, being a hitting coach and uh, things of that nature, you see guys obviously that, that look at different things, but I think sometimes when you get too much information, your mind starts spinning and uh, that's the one thing uh, you really don't want to want to happen at home plate. I mean, yeah, you look for certain pitches. Uh, I think I think one of the big things is to know pitchers and, and really know how they use their out pitch. You know, uh, to me that was really important to know that uh, you know if I'm facing Tug McGraw that uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably get you know three screwballs somewhere or four screwballs somewhere in the count. You know, or that at bat. You know, that's his money pitch. And if he's going to get beat, he's not going to get beat throwing me a fastball. That's for sure. 
Yeah, and it's the game inside the game. That's never changed. It's that cat and mouse between you and the pitcher. The better prepared, the the better the pitcher was, seems like the better chess game he played with you. And, and I think that's true today. You've got pitchers today. I remember the elite pitchers uh, when I was facing them. They'd read my body language. They'd read my takes. So if I took sure. a pitch, they instantly knew that I wasn't looking for that pitch. <laughs> and now all of a sudden I've got to revamp my plan. And and I think that's, man, that's r- the real game behind the game stuff that's wow. not talked about that I love. I used to do that. I used to do that a little bit, but I, I, certain pitchers I, I kind of do. And I, I, it's almost like I set them up to throw it, you know, and, and uh, I hate to say that, but uh, uh, that's how I feel. I mean, I face guys that uh, uh, I'd get 0-2 and how they never put me away. I mean, I'll give you an example of Steve Renko. Uh, he, he was a right-hand pitcher for the Montreal Expos. He got me probably 0-2 faster than anybody I ever faced. And guess what? I hit more home runs off of him than I hit off of anybody. You know why? Because he'd always go 0-2 and then try to impress me with his breaking ball. And I knew I'm getting it, and he's going to make a mistake. And sure enough, here it comes. You know, And then he scratched his head like, geez, how did he hit that pitch? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's happened, so. I, I don't know. It's it's changed a little bit, but I think uh, as the pitchers change, so do the hitters. They got bigger, faster, stronger, and uh, you know that makes that that kind of uh, you know makes it a little bit more more even. I, I think the great pitchers though in this game today don't want to be taken out of the ball game. You know, uh, Aaron's got one on his team that. Uh, uh, he wants to pitch nine innings, and he goes out there with the intent to pitch nine innings. Uh, we used to face uh, a guy in Chicago, Bill Pappas, and uh, used to kind of get everybody in the dugout because you know, he was five and fly. You know, he pitches five innings, and he was gone. He, he'd never see the sixth. I mean, it, 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 there were a lot of guys like that, you know. See you later. I got, I did what I'm supposed to do. I pitched five innings. So, you know, I I don't know. I think it's changed a little bit now. I think there's a lot of guys that are strong enough, bigger and stronger, and uh, want to go nine. I, I mean, they're, good pitchers don't want to come out of them. You know that. No, and I think that'll never change. The elites are always going to be they're, – they're planning on pitching nine innings. doesn't always happen, usually especially in today's game, you know, different uh, dynamics. There's different things in play that the from a fiscal standpoint, there's a lot of money out there. So they're extra careful with with players. But you're right. The, the big guys still, when they take the ball, they expect to go nine innings. And what happens happens. And you're referring to the Yankees, Garrett Cole. He's definitely one of them. Uh, you know, but there but there's several of them. Max Scherzer, he's always going out there. Sometimes he gets his pitch count up too high. Yeah. But he's going out there with the intent, a Strasburg type, a DeGrom. Uh, they're all going out there with the intent to pitch nine innings. This is their game. And and that's what separates number ones from from not number ones. And it always will. But, uh, it. It's you just you know, it's just a different a different time, a different era. But I want to get into your uh, White Sox years. After the 80 World Series and that unbelievable parade that I still remember, I was on the float with you guys. Uh, you go over to, 
to uh, Chicago White Sox uh, in 81 and 83, what's now known as the Edgar Martinez Award for, for, for DHs. Uh, you won the award yeah. those two years. And I wanted to talk to you about you've always played left field. All of a sudden you're going to the White Sox and you become a DH. And it seems pretty simple for, for a, for a uh, power hitter like you were to say, oh, of course I can DH. But there's more to it than that. I remember talking to Edgar Martinez, who was who a teammate of mine for a lot of years and one of the best DHs ever. And he was a third baseman. And all of a sudden they made him a designated hitter. And he said he was real at the beginning. He fought it. He fought it. He fought it. And then he found a way to thrive in that role. And he said he had to do different things to keep himself busy during the game. I always saw Edgar riding the bike or, or, or doing something because I have a reprieve as a second baseman. Uh, when I'm not getting many hits, I can go out there on defense and take hits away from that other team. So it kind of keeps my mind off hitting. Going from a left fielder and, and playing every day pretty much your whole career, now all of a sudden – going into that DH role, how tough was that for you? And, and, uh, or was it an easy transition for you? Well, like I said earlier, I think the, the strike zone was uh, probably the biggest transition, but that got straightened out pretty, pretty fast. Uh, you know, I, it was a little different brand of baseball for me when I went over there. Uh, Tony LaRusso was the manager. Uh, he was young. Uh, he had ideas about certain things, uh, you know, like getting a guy over. Uh, and he, I, when I never, tr- I never tried to get a guy over. He called me into the office and said, uh, "What are you doing? You got to try to get take two, you know, a couple swings, get that guy over." I said, "Let me tell you something. I never learned that. I was in a Philly organization, and I was turned t- taught how to turn uh, drive runners in, not not get them over." So we 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 got that pretty we got that straight pretty quick and uh, he he was fine with all that but you know the DH like uh, you were saying you got to stay busy you got to find something to do I mean I used to walk walk around a lot of you know hit the bike every now and then I watched a lot of uh, uh, pitches on TV because they they put a they put a, a behind the. Uh, hitter or behind home plate camera on for me and uh show show me that and a lot of the pictures my first year i didn't know and again uh, charlie lau was uh was our hitting coach and uh he would about about all charlie would say to me is this is what this guy throws and this is out pitch so when you're back there uh watching it see how he uses his out pitch and in, in situations and you know it was a lot different you know Back in the back in the seventies and eighties, we didn't have all the the, the stuff on uh, on these guys and you know what they do in certain towns. And that we had to put everything in our mind and then go write it down. If we had a little book, so uh, you know that, that was the type of thing. I, you know, I used to hit. I used to hit pretty good when your dad was behind a plate, <clears throat> but I kind of knew what he was going to try to do to me. You know, and Bob, Bob was the type of catcher because I played with him that he wouldn't, if Gene Mock and he's with the Angels told him, look, you got to go inside. You got to get this guy inside, stay in there. Well, your dad didn't do that. He didn't show you that. 
he didn't show that uh, that, that pitch to you right away. That the, the one he's going to try to get you out on. So he he'd mix in other stuff maybe out over the plate and uh, end up looking out there and looking for a mistake. And he knew when you were going to get when you had two strikes, he was he was coming in because that's what Mock wanted. So uh, you know I, I hit pretty good against those guys. Hit the Angels. And Mock said one day he said he said to me he says let me ask you a question when you go to home plate is Bob telling you what's coming? <laughs> I said. <laughs> I said, I wish, you know, because yeah. they, they, but, but, you know, you, that's all the game of baseball. You know, the little cat and mouse game you play. Uh, yeah. You're exactly right. But uh, uh, the experience of being a DH, I, I've always said this, and I, and I still say to this day, the DH is useless unless you have a guy that can contribute offensively for your ball club. You know, uh, Phillies have run into that here. When they've played American League teams, uh, you know, they put this guy in the outfield and it's your sixth or sixth outfielder and they put Harper in the DH, you know, but they can't, you've got to have offensive players as DH. And you, you well know that because you played with Martinez. Now, before I got to Chicago, uh, the, uh, Hal McCray was the big one in Kansas City. And he was he was a great hitter, but uh, every one of these guys that uh, we talk about are great offensive players, and that's that's why they're in DH, and uh, they found a way to get comfortable and produce. And I know uh, you played for Tony. You said he was a young uh, young man at the time. He, he was a lawyer, and all of a sudden, he's a big league manager. I know he's a good friend of yours. Uh, I We talked to him here on the Bood Podcast, and he's taken over that really talented Chicago White Sox team again. So basically, from, from the time you played for him, it's been 40 years. Uh, I played against Tony a lot of years when he was with the Cardinals and the Oakland A's. Uh, I think he's a brilliant baseball mind. I think he's good for this game right now with all the analytical and all the uh, the changes that have gone in the game to bring back a Tony Larusa. I think he's going to do great with this new generation. I think he's going to take his his baseball experience through the years and combine it with these guys. I don't think he's going to come in there and, and rule with an iron fist. I think he's going to be receptive to the young, these young players. Uh, what do you think? And, and how do you think Tony's going to, going to fare this year coming back? Well, I, I just talked to him. Uh, was it last week? And, uh, talked to Jerry too, Ryan Stark. Uh, Jerry, Jerry's really kind of the guy that pulled, pulled uh, the strings on this and he wanted Tony and he's been wanting Tony in there for a long time and you know come back but uh, you know Tony said the guys are good and I think one of the unique things about Tony is he can he can speak different languages he can speak Spanish fluently so uh, obviously his ball club's got a lot of Latin great great Latin players to be honest with you and I think he, he hit it off of them I, I think the one thing he said to me that uh, kind of stuck out was the fact that uh, he said when I was announced uh, manager, he said the first thing, you know, I told Jerry is, look, I don't want to make any changes. Uh, I want to try to keep everything the same except for the manager, you know. Obviously, the pitching coach left, but uh, other than that, he he wanted to keep continuity, and I I think uh, by doing that, 
they're going to have a great ball club. It's going to be them in Minnesota, obviously, in the Central. So uh, they're going to battle it out. I think Tony, uh, great manager. I mean, you look at, you know, win a World Series and uh, where Oakland, St. Louis, you know, so uh, he's he's been around. He's experienced. And, uh, you know, I think he's going to be good for a young ball club. I mean, he, you know, one thing he said, I just got to get these guys to play consistently and, and do the same thing day in, day out. Uh, you know, run the base right, throw the right, just basic baseball stuff. He says if they do that, they're very talented. They're going to win. All right. So after the uh... – so you finish up, you retire after the, after the uh, 84 season. And I want to talk to you about some stuff that, that uh, kind of fun stuff. All right, I want to talk about the mutton chops. Huh. I don't know. They just kept growing. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a picture. But, but my real question is the glasses thing. You don't see guys today wearing glasses very often. I remember as a kid. You were you were always experimenting with the glasses. It was uh, this pair, that pair. It, it seemed like your eyes were always giving you a hard time. You went with the glasses. Man, I got to a point in my career, mid-90s, where I was having a tough time with my vision and trying different contact lenses. Finally, I got it right. But but I understand how, how it uh, – you know, much of a challenge that is, but I see pictures of, of you bull and, and you got, you got the different glasses on in each one. How was that playing with glasses? I remember you. And then I remember when dad went to the angels, Brian Downey had the same thing. Yeah, I don't, it's hard. You know, it's not easy. I, the, the biggest thing is the sweat, you know, all of a sudden you'd swing and it's a hot day and the, the, the perspiration comes over your glasses. And now all of a sudden it goes right down the middle. You know, you know, it's hard to back out and have Sandy in your back pocket and clean them all the time. So you get used to, uh, you know, just playing with them. But I didn't wear glasses really till 1980, and then I wore them the rest of, obviously, the rest of my career. But uh, when I first came to Philadelphia, I, I had astigmatism, and I went to Dr. Shea, the team doctor for the Phillies, and they did the eye exam. He said, uh, throw your glasses away. So I threw threw them away and didn't wear any. And then uh, I was in left field and I kind of looked, you know, looked at the scoreboards, looked around, and I it wasn't looking right. So uh, I went back to him and he says, "Yeah, you're going to have to wear glasses." So, like you said, trying to adjust to him. I mean, I tried every contact possible. I mean, I tried contact from out of the country that they brought the hockey team brought in for me to try. So, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot of fun. I think it would have been worse if I played every day, uh, in the field, but DH and it was a little bit easier because, uh, uh, I, you know, I could take them off and clean them and things of that nature before I, you know, went up the hit again as we were in the outfield, you know, so you know how, a lot of times you're rushing to get your gloves on and get your helmet and get your bat and go uh, pine tongue up to you because you're the first hitter, you know. So it's a lot different, but, uh, you know, you got to put up with it. You're talking about the commercial and, and Steinbrenner telling you you couldn't do it. But I want to talk about the Miller Lite commercials. You were one of the original guys to do it. Once again, back in that day, it wasn't – there weren't – there weren't uh, – 
a couple dozen guys doing national ads. There were a handful of guys doing it. Schmitty talked about a couple of his. Uh, you were another one of those guys. Tell me about those Miller Lite uh, commercials and how much fun you had doing them. Well, I actually uh, did that in uh, uh, Palos Verde Country Club in uh, California. So I went out there. But before I did all that, I had an audition in New York. You know, they call you up and say, hey, Miller Lite's interested in you doing a commercial. I said, okay, fine. And I said, what do I have to do? And they said, you got to go to New York and do an audition. So they put you in front of the camera in New York, and you just basically stand there and tell them your name and where you live and, you know, you're a baseball player for how many years and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, there were other, obviously, players there that were coming in later to do the same thing. And uh, they called me up and said, I had, you know, I got a spot on the Miller Lite All-Star team to do a commercial. So I went to Palos Verde Country Club. Uh, they picked me up at <laughs> 6 o'clock in the morning. Got to the country club, and obviously it was beautiful, hot, and had my own trailer, which was really kind of unique for me. I I had the same set of clothes, like four or five, you know, sets of clothes, same kind, and I'd have to change every so often because of perspiration and things of that nature. But uh, I didn't get finished doing that commercial and then and, and you know how these producers are till about six o'clock at night. I mean, I had to do a pour. I had a can in my right hand and a glass in my left. And they're obviously the Miller Lite executive people there. And they're, they were taking cans of beer out of the ice and I was pouring them into a clear cup, but the clear cup kept frosting over. So they figured it out. They had to mix half and half, you know, so, but I, I must have poured three cases of beer. And you know how it is when it's hotter than hell. You know, you're getting a little annoyed, and I'm pouring this beer, and I can't have one until it's finished. It's got to be totally <laughs> finished. So I'm sitting in that chair just praying that the, the executive will say, hey, this beer cleared the right way. That one's good. But then when you hear that, they say, hey, let's do another one. So I spent uh, – Quite a long time at the uh, Palace Burning Country Club uh, hitting a three with the China. <laughs> 1998, Philly's Wall of Fame. How, uh, how cool was that for you? Well, what a question. That's uh, probably, you know, a, a big, obviously a big highlight. I mean, I'm there uh, with Bulls Barbecue, uh, you know, every, every, every game. And when I go to the left, the, the walls there, and, uh, with all the people that uh, are, are on the, uh, in the wall of fame there. And it's a tradition that the Phillies do, do every year. So uh, I think it's something to be proud of. I think it's something that the fans go there. It, it's really funny how people come in that left field gate and go right to that wall and start pointing fingers at different, different plaques that are up there and, and reading them to the kids. And uh, I, I think that that's kind of unique. You know, this is the guy that I used to go watch. You know, you look Mike Schmidt, you know, 560 home runs. You know, he was a great player. And I think that's that's what baseball is all about. And uh, that's basically why I'm at the ballpark, because uh, 10 years ago or 16 years ago, when they, they built this thing, believe it or not, they they wanted to make it a fan-friendly uh, ballpark. And uh, uh, Ashburn Alley's out there, and I'm on the end of it. 
and uh, they used all local product, you know, cheesesteaks and pizzas and hoagies out there. And so it's all, it's all things that the people in South Philly grew up, grew up with. And uh, so uh, they asked me if I'd be interested in, in be, being there in the barbecue business. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I've been there ever since. Uh, things worked out very, very well. And uh, like I said, I, I, you know, I meet a lot of fans. I talk, talk a lot of baseball, but I have a good time. Yeah, and I think, is that section 104? Am I right? No, I got I moved. I'm, I'm in left field now. Oh, it's not in 104 because I came out and visited you probably, oh, yeah. it's got to be five or six years ago. All right, so you're in a different section now. It is good. And I've got the Bulls barbecue <laughs> sauce at the house. Yeah, well, you, it seemed, you it seemed like you enjoy doing that. Daddy. It seems like you enjoy. Uh, I know. Uh, well, you could sit here and say, oh, I love going. I mean, it's when you got to go to the ballpark every day after a while. Yeah, you'd like a day off, too. But I think uh, when when I came out there and visited you and saw you, I hadn't seen you in a while. I know the fans really appreciate hanging out with Bull. Like I, I said earlier in the program, you've always had that way about you where you've just got something about you that people want to hang out with, with the Bull and talk baseball. It seems like you really enjoy it. You found a little niche with the Bull's barbecue. Are you having that much fun doing it? Yeah, I enjoy the hell out of it. I mean, I, I, I meet a lot of unique people. I be, become friends with a lot of those people. I do. I sp- we sponsor trips uh, in the wintertime, vacation trips, and uh, different trips during the season where fans go with us uh, to different to, to visit different stadiums and teams. And I've been doing that since uh, forever. So, in fact, we're, Gene just told me we're coming to San Diego this summer. So we'll be there in August on a weekend. That's one thing the Phillies do, and, and uh, man, they do a good job with you guys. The alumni, and, and I hear the stories from you and Gene and Mom and Dad, and I just see the way they go about it, first-class operation, uh, and I would say they do at least as good a job as anybody in baseball is really keeping that uh, the, the players from, from yesteryear, just keep them coming back. I think it's important, and I think the fans really appreciate it. You know, you, you develop generations and generations of fans. You can have the, the little kids that are watching the Bryce Harpers, but then you go to the guys that were watching Chase Utley and then to the, to the grandpa and the fathers that were watching Greg Luzinski. I, I think that's important in the game, and I, and I think it says something about that organization. And uh, you guys do a really good job, and, and I think it's well, cool. Let's, re- let's remember that the Phillies have never been a corporate-owned organization. They are always owned by uh, the Carpenters, and, and now uh, Giles went in there. And now Middleton is, uh, you know, running, running it. So you got a lot of family organizations that that took over. You, you know, and uh, I think that makes a little bit of difference uh, that it's not run the, the same way. There's a more of a personal feeling in there. Yeah, very cool. Well, Greg, I really appreciate you coming on the Boone podcast. And what we do at the end of the podcast is we bring in the voice. Dan Levy, he's got a question from the fans. Dan O. Hello, fellas. Greg, how are you? Good, good, very Uh, good. All right, this question comes from Pete in Santa Monica. And he wants to know, who is the nastiest pitcher you've ever faced? 
Well, to be honest with you, I think the best pitcher that that I faced uh, only because he could win with his bad stuff. I mean, he didn't have to have his good stuff. He could go out there and still win. I mean, there were probably guys that threw a little bit harder, but, uh, you know, the, the New York Mets top receiver was uh, one of the best I ever faced. Uh, he was just good. All right. Well, Greg Lazinski, the Bull, thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boone Podcast. We appreciate it, Got sir. It. I didn't think he could talk an hour. <laughs> Thanks, Bull. <laughs> mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound. It means it's time to dip our hands into the Brett Boone mailbag. Shall we roll? Mailbag time. All right, Brett. As we reach into the old bag, we find one from Brad in New Jersey, and he wants to know, Brett, which Philly cheesesteak guy are you, Pat or Gino's, and what is the best way to have a Philly cheesesteak with or without the squeeze, the, the cheese squeeze? Oh, without a doubt, no cheese squeeze. Uh, Pat or Gino's, you know, I, I'm a big cheesesteak guy. Uh, I go to Wawa for my hoagies. But cheesesteak, I can't, I can't remember Pat and Gino's which one the difference is in them. I like a basic cheesesteak uh, with cheese and onions, no peppers, no extra sauces, just basic. All right. Let's launch right back in here one more time. By the way, I do love the uh, the easy cheese. All right, this one comes from Mike in Tucson. Brett, have you been watching the Pac-12 in March Madness? Mike, I got to be full disclosure. No. Uh, I did jump on, though, the second half of the SC Gonzaga, and I watched my Trojans get beat. Uh, this year, I've just had a lot going on during the during – the, uh, during March Madness, we're going to have Dickie V coming on. He's going to break it down for us on the podcast in a couple of weeks so he can fill me in on what happened. But I did. I, I, I know that SC was having a run, uh, and I know they got beat by Gonzaga. So I did tune in. But other than that, I haven't, I haven't watched at all. All right, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of this here Boone Podcast. The executive producer of the Boone Podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast, Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.